Welcome back, Book Banter listeners, and welcome to fall. Fun fact, Ohio is consistently listed as one of the country's best destinations for fall color. But we're still waiting for the leaves to change this month at Apple Tree Books, so we're embracing the season in other ways, with displays for Halloween, seasonal centerpieces from Hester and Cook, and our community window featuring items from Hopewell with scarves, cutting boards, and more all available for sale. Stay tuned at the end of this episode for more announcements, but in the meantime, it was my privilege for this month's interview to learn more about an exceptional Cleveland community nonprofit organization and one of Apple Tree Books' long standing community partners, Seeds of Literacy. My name is Karma Stewart. I'm the Vice President of Programming at Seeds of Literacy. Seeds of Literacy is an adult literacy education organization in Cleveland. It's a private nonprofit. We're actually celebrating 25 years of serving the greater Cleveland community this year. This is our 25th anniversary. A lot of people know us as a GED program, but we're actually an adult literacy program, and our mission is to provide free instruction to enable adults to thrive in our community. You said this is your 25th anniversary, Mm -hmm. so congratulations. Thank you. Can you tell us more about uh, how Seeds of Literacy started and was founded in the first place? I can. So Seeds was started by the Sisters of St. Joseph in 1997, and a lot of the the, uh, orders of sisters will start projects in the community and then transition it over to a nonprofit. So Seeds became a a private nonprofit and has been operating um, at our West Side location since about 2007. Um, We have two locations in Cleveland. Our west side location is at West 25th and Clark in the Clark Fulton neighborhood. Our east side location is at East 139th and Kinsman in the Mount Pleasant neighborhood. And COVID, the one gift of COVID, is that we now have a virtual classroom as well. So the virtual classrooms didn't exist before COVID? It did not exist before COVID. It was born nine days after we had the shutdown from Governor DeWine. Nine days. Wow, that must have been hectic. It was incredibly hectic. There were just eight of us trying to transition from a fully face-to-face program to a fully virtual program. And to be completely honest, I think Todd Seabrook, Chris Richards, and Kara Kraviak on our team really should get the most credit because they're the ones who really had to run the class and um, but we were all pitching in to do trainings with our tutors to build their skills so that they were comfortable in that environment. And then really working with uh, our CEO, Bonnie Ensler, and and I, we worked to really try to help get devices into the hands of the students so that they could access the virtual classroom. And it just, it was a madhouse. I mean, honestly, I think after maybe the second week, I realized that we have all been working around the clock to get this going and we need sleep. Wow. So the virtual classes are still available and ongoing? Yes, even after the lockdown lifted. Well, because what we found out was, first of all, for some of our students and tutors, it it really, like, so some of our tutors feel like they can offer more Mm -hmm. tutoring time because they're not commuting. So they want to do more sessions in the virtual classroom. A lot of people find that just, you know, our students, they don't have the barrier of transportation. If they log on, they don't have to worry about the bus or having enough bus fare. Sure. Um, transportation is a significant barrier to a lot of our students. We often have students who say, well, I won't be in class next week because I don't have bus fare. And then you have students who have medical issues. It's just a lot easier for them to be home closer to their care than to have to come on site. And then you also have students who just have, you know, maybe they have a lot of children and they don't have to worry about childcare. And then the other thing is that 
because of the pandemic, I think a lot of people nationally were at home and trying to figure out like, what is my next move and what do I want to do? So we've actually gotten students from 35 states outside of Ohio. They're not the main focus of our program, but they're not finding this type of service in their communities. And we actually have students from five countries outside of the U.S. now who are accessing our virtual classroom. How did people from other states and countries find you guys in the first place? Well, I will have to give credit to our communications director, Katie Cusera, because she maintains this really wonderful website and works to make sure that we have good optimization on Google. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also a couple of Facebook groups around folks who are trying to get their GED and a few Reddit groups that the word is just spreading. And honestly, word of mouth is really the best recruiter for us for our program. But the virtual classroom, for sure, people just have said, you know, I found something. Hey, have you tried this place? And so I have to credit Katie with that because she put us out there and people are finding us on the web and they'll say, well, I I Googled and it came up. And so that's that's where I, I thought I would give you guys a call. They don't typically believe that it's free. So they're waiting for that. Okay, so what is the application fee? So what is the registration fee? So what is this? How much is this? It's like, no, it's all free. The only thing our students pay for is their test fees. And we actually help with that with our Ohio residents. Were you surprised when that you first got a call from somebody who's not an Ohio resident? We like, were what? extremely surprised. I think that, so we were definitely surprised by residents from outside of Ohio. When we got the first student from Bangladesh, <laughs> we were <laughs> okay. like, yeah. what? So what is happening that people are finding us? And, and, um, and I, I quite honestly, we're, you know, we are a Cleveland company. Our, our hearts are here. We live here. We're definitely committed to our students in Cleveland. Um, our face-to-face classes are, you know, there are students who just, they don't want to be in a virtual space or they don't have the access or they just really don't feel comfortable and want to learn face-to-face and want that really social connection as well. Mm-hmm. So our, our, our Cleveland program is a heart and soul with us, but we, it's just, just really hard to turn people away when you know that they don't have the same service available in their community. So yeah. probably about 12%, 13% of our students from outside of Ohio, we're still really, really committed to our home. So it sounds like the setup is you train the tutors and then the tutors are the ones who uh, work with the students. So people people don't have to have any like, education experience to no. volunteer. No. Um, so how long does it take to train a tutor and what are you teaching them to do? Well, so I should say the majority of our tutors do not have an educational background. Um, it, I think the ones who do have an educational background feel, find that they have, you know, information, skills, knowledge and resources that they can draw from. But we do provide a, a tutor training. The initial training is, is a five hour training. And it really initially that training is a, really about making sure that people understand who SEEDS is, who our students are. Um, and to make sure that it's a good fit for us and that they're, they're a good fit for us and that we're a good fit for them. So it really is about understanding who our students are, how they operate, and making sure that tutors have the right disposition for working with students. We just want to make sure that tutors come in with the right heart and the right spirit, and then we can help them with the skill part, you know. Mm-hmm. And so we also have a, um, a professional development program where, you know, some of our site coordinators and I provide additional training in um, teaching reading, teaching beginning readers, and mathematics and how to use the calculator for the GED, like any skills that the tutors need. And honestly, we, we survey them sometimes or we listen to things that are happening within their tutoring sessions and design around what their needs are. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of our professional development is free and it's usually offered a couple times a week, east and west, so that people can, can access it. We do some virtual professional development as well, but they're supported by our site coordinator. So we have a site coordinator in every classroom. Our virtual classroom actually has two site coordinators and the site coordinator's role 
is to really provide that, you know, to make sure that students are matched with the right tutors, making sure those relationships work, that the tutor knowledge base meets the students' needs, and just providing instructional leadership in terms of making sure they have the right materials and curriculum. And then, honestly, the tutors support one another as well. So it's not, I've seen a tutor and student struggling with a math problem and get up and go to another tutor to say, okay, help us with this. Mm-hmm. So, but we do have that extra layer of staff support for all of our tutors who are tutoring. So for an in-person class, what does that look like? Is there's the site coordinator you said, and mm-hmm. then is it one-on-one tutor to student? It is one-to-one. Uh, so when students and tutors come into the class, they're greeted by our reception team and they're greeted by the site coordinators. And typically in the, if it's, if you're not a new student, you will go to, to your folder and get your folder that has the things that you've been working on. Um, a lot of times students come pretty consistently. We do, we have 12 class sessions a week. So Monday through Thursday, there's a nine to 11 session, a one to three session and a six to eight session. Cause we try to be really flexible and give students a lot of options. We don't require students to come at a set schedule and we don't require it of our tutors. But if you have a consistent schedule, you pretty much know, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to tutor with with Julia or, you know, there's some, there are some matches that people kind of look for one another, mm-hmm. but really the site coordinators choose who's going to work with who on, on a given day. And they really work to match people up in terms of temperament and in terms of what the student is working on and what skills the tutor has and what they're comfortable tutoring. And so then the student tutor go and sit at a table and then they, they work independently. Um, there are some students who prefer to not work with the tutor sometimes. And so we, 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 Give them that freedom. They're adults. They can choose how, how they best want to be supported. So they, they work independently until they ask for help? Well, they ask for help. We also kind of nudge, like, are you sure you don't want to work with a tutor? You know, you're making progress, but you might make progress a little bit more quickly if you have someone who could explain things, you know, so you're not grappling with something for 15 minutes where a tutor might figure it out in five. Mm-hmm. And so they're really, <laughs> our site coordinators are really good at kind of nudging people when they feel like they really do need that support. Mm-hmm. But so they do, but they have options. And what about in the virtual space? So does everybody log on and to and get put into breakout rooms? or something? Exactly. Oh. Exactly. So everyone logs into the virtual classroom. Uh, one of our, so the two virtual site coordinators kind of divide the responsibilities and one of them focuses on matching people and sending them to the breakout room and the other one makes sure, goes in to make sure that they have the right materials and we've been mailing materials to students and they'll come in and pick up things and, you know, and just really make sure that they have what it takes to move them to that next level. Now, I know we've already talked about you have students from all over the place at mm-hmm. this point. Uh, what about volunteers? Do you have, for, for, for virtual classrooms, do you have any out-of-state volunteers We have a volunteer. I want to say she's in the Philippines, but it's like 1 o'clock in the morning her time when she logs on to tutor. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we yeah. have an insomniac in the Philippines. <laughs> right, right. We do have a couple, um, we do have a couple tutors who are from out of the country, and then we have some tutors who are from other states. And again, we've not marketed outside of Ohio. They just find us and and decide that they want to help, which is wonderful. So our, actually our our board of directors is right now thinking like, how, how do we do this? Because we are a Cleveland company with a Cleveland identity. You know, some of our funders are in some of our tutors really want to support their own particular community. And so we're actually kind of grappling with that now. Like how, what is our pathway forward? Because mm-hmm. the need is there and we want to meet them as best, as best we can. So I, I take it that means that your organization is pretty insular. You don't have, um, sister locations or partners outside of Cleveland? We, we don't have sister locations or partners outside of Cleveland. Um, I think the dream is for us to be everywhere because we would like to 
eliminate illiteracy as a social problem. Yeah. And we can't do it if we only focus on, you know, like the more places we are, the more people we can help. And we really want to want to do that. Um, right at this point, there are so many people. The need is really great in the local community. And so we really want, you know, our charity begins at home. We really want to help our Clevelanders get to the point where this isn't something that's keeping them from moving forward in their lives and their parenting and their careers. Uh, but yeah, eventually, and, and we do get a lot of inquiries from people saying, hey, you know, we would really like to have you in this county or we would really love for you to come to this city. But I think people don't necessarily know how much it takes to actually run because we kind of function like a school district, quite honestly. And so I think people think, oh, well, you've already got these tutors. Why don't you just send them to our building? But there's a lot that goes into it. So it almost sounds like as, as amazing as it is that you've found individual students for in other locations, mm-hmm. what you, what they kind of need is not for profits in other locations. Right, True. get them set up with their own. True. When we when so. we travel to conferences, we often get that uh, you know it's like so. How does this work? How do you do this? How how, do, how are you making this happen? Mm-hmm. And honestly, the tutors are the heart and soul of our program. We could not provide the one to one without them, and and they give generously of their time. We have some tutors who tutor. Every day. We have tutors who tutor a couple times a day. Before the pandemic, we had two tutors who would come to our east side location Monday through Thursday. They would get there around 10 a.m. and they would leave at 8 when we were walking out of the building. So what kind of conferences do you go to? So there are, there are a couple of national adult education conferences that we attend just to, for our own professional development and to share things that we've learned with other practitioners in our field. We all, you know, find, make these discoveries and find these promising practices. So those conferences give us an opportunity to showcase what we're doing as well as to figure out, you know, maybe there are ways that we could be doing things a little bit differently. How does a student find you? What, are the, what usually triggers them to be looking for you in the first place? Well, so typically students find us because they know that maybe they run into something in their lives that they're not able to do. I want to run get into this edu- post-secondary education program, or I want to get into this training program, or I really want this job, or I have a job and now they require the credential. So how do I get this credential? So a lot of times people find us via Google, <laughs> the king of all, <laughs> and then a lot of it is word of mouth, just knowing someone who's in school already or who's completed, who says, hey, I got mine here, you should try it. So those are the main ways that people find us. If they find us on our website, typically they'll call us too. There is a registration form on our website. So if you go to seedsofliteracy.org and just look at it right on the front page, it says be a student, you can fill out a registration form right there. A lot of times we get referrals, so if someone goes onto our website and looks for how to help or become involved, there is a refer a student link, so you can re- make a referral. But once someone fills out that registration form or that referral link, then we reach out to the student and make sure that we find out, do they want to be a virtual student? Do they want to be in person? Are they east? Are they west? And what are they looking for, and are we a good fit? And then we provide orientation every week. So every week we have an orientation at both of our physical locations, Every week we have two virtual orientations, and then once a month we do an evening orientation as well to try to accommodate folks who work during the day. We don't do weekends. Seeds has kind of experimented with weekend and Friday programming in the past, and it just hasn't been enough to really justify getting staff there on Saturdays and trying to pull tutors in. So Monday, Thursday seems to be the way that works for for most of the adult education field. So it sounds like the program is always... Yeah, watching itself as well, collect data and go with what works. Uh, you know, I have change. to give a lot of credit to our president and CEO, Bonnie Entler, because, I, and that's actually part of the reason why um, I, when I came to CES, I came as a consultant. And when she approached me about joining the team, part of the reason that I was willing to say yes is because she really is, you know, I kind of had this dream of creating like what would be the 
one program that is the model program that really applies best practice research and promising practices. And she is so willing to, to experiment and to pivot and to try things and to see, you know, okay, so we tried this and this is what our results were. So how can we tweak that so we get better results the next time? And so that, that continuous improvement mindset is, it's just, it's a part of the culture, I think, of Seeds Now. And I think she established that. And I think that that's wonderful because a lot of programs are in community colleges or in K-12, you know, public school districts, and they don't necessarily have the flexibility to pivot in that way. Yeah. So it really is kind of a gift um, to have that, that leadership and then to have that type of flexibility given our structure. All right. Let's go back to that new student that we were talking about. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they, they've called you, they're registered, and now it's their first day of class. Let's say that they're showing up in person. What, what's their day going to look like? So when they come in person, they typically have a, a couple minutes where they'll sit with the site coordinator and the site coordinator will get a sense of, you know, they'll review kind of what their goals were coming into the program. They'll look at their assessment scores. We do three different assessments for the students, one that's standardized and required, and then two that we've designed, well, one that we designed ourselves that our site coordinators designed and one that um, that's just like a regular oral reading fluency assessment because it, the standardized assessment gives us a general sense of where they are, but our assessments kind of drill down to what specifically a student may be struggling with in math. So we know, are we starting on fractions or do you need to go back and work on your addition, subtraction, multiplication, division facts? The reading assessment helps us figure out why a student may not be able to comprehend. Is it because they're not fluent? Is it because they struggle with vocabulary? Do they need phonics instruction? Uh, so they, we really kind of do that. So the psychoanalysts have that information in front of them when they do that first consultation with the student. And then they'll kind of get a sense of where the student wants to start because we try to really respect the fact that they're adults mm-hmm. and many of them are very self-directed. They know what they want to work on. They know what they want to focus on. And then pairing them with a tutor and making sure that that, that student, that session is going okay. Mm-hmm. What are some typical goals? You said like the GED program, obviously. <laughs> Once they've set that goal, are there like milestones reaching towards that goal? Typically, well, I'll say there really isn't a typical, but what we do hear a lot is that people are, a lot of folks are interested in going into the health careers fields. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get a lot of folks who want to go into cosmetology and um, barbering. We get a lot of folks who say, oh, I would like to start a business. And we'll go, well, what kind of business do you want to start? And they don't really know and they don't know where to start. So I think what it is is that people have dreams and goals for themselves based on what they see around them. And so part of our program, we actually, in the last year and a half or so, have been focusing on helping students do a little bit of career exploration. And we have them do an interest inventory so they can start thinking about what other opportunities are out there. Because a lot of times there are things that they are qualified for that could earn, could help them find a well-paying job, but they just don't know that the opportunity is there. Mm-hmm. And so there are, we do kind of check in with students as they, about every 40 hours of instruction, about every couple months or so, we do reassessments with students to talk to them about their progress. And so we revisit those goals when we have those conversations because some of our students will come to us and within a couple months, they've gotten what they need to pass all of their exams. Other students have a much longer road because, honestly, an adult literacy classroom is like a one-room schoolhouse. You may have someone who's just learning their vowel sounds all the way to somebody who's ready for advanced algebra and geometry. Mm. So it really is different for every student, and that's where our psych coordinators come in because they, when they have those conferences and check-ins with students after they reassess, they can go back to whatever is the most realistic goal and to set some sort of a milestone for them that's a lot more achievable mm-hmm. so that it doesn't feel so overwhelming that I'm so far away from my goal. We actually have a, a ladder for our math 
on the wall so students can see that this is where you're trying to get to. Like you're at this height and we're trying to get you here. Mm -hmm. So we try to give them a couple different ways to think about uh, those achievements along the way. We have some students who come in and say, well, I just want to be able to read a book to my grandchild, or I just want to be able to read my Bible for myself, or I want to be able to read the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Like I have them memorized, but I don't know what the words are. So once they, once they attain that goal, then we're like, okay, so what's next for you? Um, some of them, I mean, we have book clubs that we offer as a part of our programming oh, cool. that the site coordinators facilitate. And they, you know, some students just want to be able to participate more confidently, you know. So I think that, that, that it's a continual process as people realize what, what more is possible for them as they begin to gain more skills. You mentioned uh, different programs that you have coming up. Can, would you like to share more about those? Well, we do. So we do have, um, we're, we're working on creating a job club with Goodwill Industries so that our students can get help on site with preparing resumes and cover letters and interviewing. Um, we do have a health literacy curriculum that we've been working with in partnership with Case Western and a health literacy assessment that we've been working with in partnership with BW. And we want to try to pilot some of those things this year as well because our students have expressed an interest in increasing their health literacy skills as well. Obviously, literacy impacts health literacy, financial literacy, digital literacy. So really trying to connect to those things. Um, and then our book clubs are every week. Uh, I think the East Side is reading um, the poems of Amanda Gorman right now <laughs> and really enjoying that. I don't remember what they're reading on the West Side. I think they're reading The House on Mango Street. Uh, health literacy. I'm not sure everybody would be familiar with that term. So mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit more about that. So health literacy is being able to consume information, health information in print, and then to be able to understand it well enough to make decisions from that. So whether that's reading a prescription and knowing the exact dosage that you're supposed to take, when you're supposed to take it, and how much, mm -hmm. to being able to read discharge papers from your doctor or hospital visit, hospital or doctor visit, and being able to maintain your health or being able to even consume information like, you know, how many how many calories are in one serving or what constitutes a serving or being able to read a pamphlet about breast cancer and knowing how to do a breast cancer screening. So health literacy was something that we, we surveyed students in 2018 and said, you know, what are some other things? Like, what do we do well and what, what do you want us to improve on? And what are some things that you need? And health literacy was one of the things that they said they, you know, we want more information about diabetes. And we're actually seeing occasions where a student may come in with information. Like we had a student who, who, he came in, he was diagnosed with diabetes by his doctor, and they didn't really explain in detail, or maybe he didn't understand their explanation about what he could do. So he came in and he went to our site, our site coordinator was going around and just saying hello to everybody in the morning, and she stopped to talk to him, and he told her that he was feeling weak and a little dizzy, and she's like, well, what's going on? He's like, well, I haven't eaten, and she's like, well, why haven't you eaten? And he's, he hadn't eaten because he was afraid to eat because he was, they were telling him everything that, you know, your diet is so important, but they didn't really guide him. Mm -hmm. And so we had a volunteer, uh, Marianne Nikolai, who's on our program committee, who is a diabetes educator. And so she Zoomed with him to walk him through what he could eat. We had another student who came in with papers from his doctor and was concerned that he had prostate cancer and was like, I don't know how to make sense of all this medical information. And we were able to connect him with another partner from Case Western, um, Jeremy Melantine, who sat down with him and went over his paperwork and helped him understand that, no, you don't have prostate cancer. And here's what, here's what these reports are saying to you. And here's what you can do to put yourself in a better position mm -hmm. health wise. So if a student is really struggling with literacy you think about how difficult medical vocabulary is. Oh, yeah. So if they're struggling with basic literacy, health literacy is even more important because 
it's critical for your life, for your health, for your well-being. And so we want to make sure that our students are kind of getting um, a full rounded education. We know that they're focusing on the things that will help them pass the exam, but we also want to give them things that show a real life application. So you're learning about cells in a science lesson, and then you do a health literacy lesson about cancer, which explains if you understand cells, then you can understand that lesson about cancer and how cancer spreads a little bit better. Mm -hmm. So really just trying to contextualize the lessons to connect them to things that our students actually care about in their personal lives and their professional goals as well. So we actually had a patient educator from, um, from the clinic come to one of our tutor trainings. Mm -hmm. And after the training, she was like, you've got to come train my patient educators. You have to come do it. Like they, I, I just really want them to understand like the, how, the problem. When she heard that 66% of Clevelanders are considered functionally illiterate, she was like, wait a minute, like that, those are our patients. Like we, yeah. we need to make sure that we understand them. And so we, we did a presentation there about um, how just the, the prevalence of literacy in Cleveland and how, how it impacts it. And, and I actually followed a couple of their patient educators around to say, okay, I, these are some things I observed and here's what you could do to make it a lot easier for someone, you know, and they were like, we're changing the way we do things today. Like yeah. we're doing it, we're doing it different now. That, no, that was actually just one particular incident. But I mean, honestly, if it's something that people are interested in, we like to talk about our students and we like to talk about the problem of illiteracy because that's the only way to get that awareness and advocacy out there. Mm -hmm. um, and if it helps move someone to decide, hey, I'd like to try being a volunteer, that's wonderful. If it moves someone to reach deeper and say, I'd like to make a donation, that's also great. We are we fully fund our program every year. Mm -hmm. um, and so so we're we're happy to talk to people about who we are, what we do, why we do what we do and how, um, especially if it will result in us getting some additional help. Our tutor force is, is very important in maintaining a good good group of active tutors is really important for the success of our program. Say you've got a new volunteer. First of all, how does the volunteer usually find you? So again, word of mouth is wonderful. We get a lot of tutors who talk about their experiences with our students, with their friends and family members. And, and then someone will say, you know, I really actually think I'm going to try that. In fact, on our, on our website, one of our tutors, Ann Scanello, if you go to our Become a Tutor page, there's a video of Ann Scanello talking about how she had a friend talking about her tutoring. And she was like, you know, I could do this. I should be doing this. And just how, how she gets as much out of the tutoring. But most people find us either because they know someone or they just happen to be looking for some way to volunteer, some way to give back to the community. A lot of times people hear that 66% statistic and then go to our webpage like there's no way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's no way that's true. And so what can I do to, to help with that? So say somebody is interested in becoming a tutor, but they're a little nervous because they're not, they come in and yes, I can read, I can, I can read in several languages, mm -hmm. but I cannot solve a math problem to save my life. Mm -hmm. And so they're worried about <laughs> you know, their ability to be effective. What yeah. would you say to them? Well, that's, that's common. I mean, a lot of times in tutor training, people will be like, yeah, I'm not doing math. I don't do math. <laughs> but what, I'll tell you, so there are a couple of different things. The first thing is, we do have materials that the tutors want to look at the materials themselves and take them home and, and just kind of get more familiar. They're, they're welcome to do that. We've got books all over the classroom that they can look at. Um, there are free test questions online. So sometimes we'll download those sample sets so they can see and look at it and just kind of refresh. But honestly, I think the people who don't do math are better at explaining math because people who get math don't get why the rest of us don't get it. Yes. <laughs> you know? yes. So they're not the best at explaining it. Oh, but honestly, so you don't have to tutor anything unless you're not, unless you're comfortable tutoring it. And the other thing that we remind them is that 
the students feel a little bit intimidated as well. So think about the fact that they feel intimidated every time they walk into the classroom, possibly. And so if you're a little bit out of your comfort zone, that's actually okay. And it's okay to learn something together. Where does most of the funding for Seeds of Literacy come from? So the majority of our fundraising comes from grants and individual donations. We are partially funded by the State Aspire program this year. So we're in our second year of funding from them. Um, we have an amazing director of grant development, Carrie Klein, who worked for Seeds years ago and then has returned to us. And she has been, I can't even, aggressive is not really the word for it, <laughs> but she is very good at finding sources and really, really listening to the staff and listening to the challenges that we talk about and listening to the student stories and then finding funding sources for particular initiatives. Um, sponsorships, our, our board of directors has been amazing in helping us get sponsorships. We have two major events each year, a spring event and a fall event. Um, this year, our fall event is Thrive. We typically offer, there's a cultivator award and someone is, you know, honored for their contributions to literacy. This year, we're actually honoring Margo Hudson, who is, was a SEED student, became a SEED grad, came back to be a SEED tutor, and is I, I don't know, advocate, ambassador, I don't know what the word is for it, but she gets our name out in the community. It, so many people find us because of Margot, because she's everywhere and she shares her story in the most compelling way. And she actually gets a lot of folks who come to us because they've heard her story and they're inspired by her and her work. So yeah. how did uh, Seeds of Literacy get connected with Apple Tree Books? So I think we've made a, quite a bit of effort to reach out to the independent bookstores um, I know that we've done a couple of events in different stores, and so I think through that relationship, um, our communications director, Katie, has kept in touch. And then they started donating books. So if they get books that are damaged, they'll donate them. We, we do maintain a library on site, mm -hmm. so the students and tutors have access to as many books as they want. Um, and so I think that that relationship came from that original outreach and then just the, the generosity of Apple Tree to provide that. And you know, anytime that there's anything that they're doing that we can be a part of, we're always happy to partner because they've been such a wonderful partner in the past. So is there uh, anything you'd like to say in closing? I think we've pretty much covered everything. I appreciate all of your questions and even the opportunity to be here. And I would just say if there's someone who's out there who's hearing this podcast who's saying that they're thinking about it and they have some reservations, I would say if you're a student or a tutor and you're really just wanting to figure out, like, how does this work and can I do it, come observe. Come see for yourself. You can always sit in on a session virtually or you can come to our physical location and sit with a student and tutor pair, whether you're a student or a tutor, and see how, you know, can you see yourself in that space? And I think that that, that is really the best way for someone to decide, is this for me? If we have any bilingual listeners who are interested in being a tutor with Seeds of Literacy, they would love to hear from you. And as for Thrive, the event that was mentioned in the interview, that's going to take place on November 4th. Ticket prices and further details are available on their website, which is seedsofliteracy.org. That's seedsofliteracy, all one word, dot org. Writer in the Window is returning to Apple Tree Books again this year for the month of November. This is a program that we've had for a few years now, and it's gotten some great reactions. A personal favorite of mine was 
uh, a gentleman was walking down the street and saw a couple of our uh, return guests writing in our windows, um, but he couldn't f seem to figure out why they were there or what they were doing. Uh, I couldn't hear him very well from inside the store uh, until the end of his speculation, because for some reason it seemed to really upset him, and he kept getting louder and louder uh, before deciding that the writers in our window were actually the store owners, and they should not be spending their time writing in the windows like that. It was irresponsible because they had a business to run, and <laughs> I'm not sure how he came to that conclusion. But in case anybody else is still confused on the matter, let me explain. Um, because November is uh, National Novel Writing Month as well, where people who have aspired to be novel writers in the past uh, commit to, and uh, or at least attempt to finish their novel by the end of the month, uh, we provide writing space in our windows to both complete novice aspiring writers and also uh, we have a few published authors who also take advantage of our writing space and we are happy to have all of you. So whichever category you fall into, if you are interested, we are accepting reservations for Fridays and Saturdays in November. You can find more information on our webpage or just stop by the front desk and ask if you have any questions. Uh, 2023's calendars are already available in store, and as you may remember from the last couple of years, calendars go quickly, so come in and grab them while they last. And finally, in preparation for holiday season, November will also see the return of our Book the Bookstore program, where you and your friends can reserve the entire store for some uninterrupted browsing, fueled by a little Prosecco and some mini desserts, all of which are delicious. Again, go to appletree-books.com for more details. We have yet to determine how the end of the year is going to impact our podcast release schedule, but keep an eye on all of our various social media and the newsletter for updates. Hopefully, I will be speaking to you again soon, but either way, stay safe and happy Halloween. The music for book banter was provided by playonloop.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0.